Every podcast needs a theme song. And here's mine. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Restoring History. I am Mike Kelleher, and on today's show, I'm joined by Mike Murray of MyComicStore.net and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles writer Steve Murphy. But first, let me remind you about the Master Series being produced by my company, Kellistration. What is the Master Series? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Master Series is a series of high-quality art restoration featuring some of the most important and neglected artwork in the history of cartoon illustrations. Our first set, featuring Windsor McKay's Little Nemo in Slumberland, is available now. You get four prints, that's right, four prints, each measuring 18 by 24 inches, each painstakingly restored from original art. You can visit K-E-L-L-U-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N.com and order your set now. That's Kellistration.com. All right, joining me today is our good friend uh, Mike Murray from MyComicStore.net. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Mike. Thank you for having me. And also, I'm thrilled to have uh, Steve Murphy with us. Uh, Steve was the writer of uh, Puma Blues, also worked on uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, the, uh, the animated series, and also the uh, you did the the reboot for the Archie series back like in the mid to late uh, 90s. I mean, sorry, 80s. Is that correct? It is. And yeah. I want to thank you for flying me in today. <laughs> Appreciate it. I hope the hotel's good. It's all right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a motel. All right. So, um, Place to be here. Thank you. Oh, you're, uh, th- thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to pick your brain for just one quick second before we get on to a lot of, uh, a lot of fun stuff. I don't know if uh, I, I, I don't know how relevant it is it is today, but uh, years ago you were part of the Creators Bill of Rights, and almost kind of inadvertently you were you were uh, involved with uh, with that, if, if I remember correctly. Because inadvertently is a good way to put it. Yeah. it was like Creators Bill of Rights was like a snowball that started, and as it rolled down the mountain, I was one of these twigs, and I just got caught up in it and went down and splat. Yeah, if, 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 if I remember correctly, the story was that oh, was Dave story. Dave Sim was having uh, Dave Sim, of course, uh, um, creator of uh, Cerebus, one of the probably actually probably the, the book that got me into indie comics. I think it, that was my introduction to indie comics back in the uh, back in the early '80s. And um, he was having a problem with uh, Diamond Comic Distributors. And I don't know exactly what he said. I don't know what he said or did to the Diamond comic distributors, but Diamond's reaction was, well, screw you. We're not going to carry Puma Blues anymore, which was a book that Dave was uh, publishing at the time under uh, Aardvark. Is that the name he of it? Yeah, he had it. Aardvark was, um, Aardvark Vanaheim was his company for printing service. Yeah. Then he started this thing called Aardvark One International, okay. which Puma Blues became the first title of and I think only, I don't remember, but I don't think there were any other titles. That was it? I think so. Oh. So, yeah, so you're right. So Diamond got mad at Dave for something about the phone book size book reprints he was doing. Yep. Whether he was going to sell them directly and as well as oh, the yeah, yes. something like that. Right, right. So they get all pissy, and then they said, all right, we're not going to carry Puma Blues. <laughs> 
which it's an, an odd reaction that that's what they decided. Uh, well, uh, of course, it makes sense because Cerebus must have been a uh, well, it definitely was a good selling book uh, back then, and so they wanted to attempt to hurt Dave Sim, but they didn't want to hurt themselves at the time, and so you were just kind of thrown into the uh, into the mix here. Now, did they eventually end up carrying Puma Blues uh, uh, again? Yeah, but somewhere in there, Buddy Saunders, who I think owned a chain of stores in Texas, got involved as well. Mm-hmm. And he, after Diamond capitulated on it and started carrying Puma again, I'm not even sure if they actually even missed an issue. I bet they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, he decided not to carry Puma in his stores. He was still mad about it for some reason, this guy Saunders. <laughs> and... Um, did he still carry Cerebus? Yes. It was really <laughs> weird. So I wound up calling this guy, and, um, and unbeknownst to him, I tape recorded it because I wanted to figure out what the heck was going on here. Yeah. So we had this really weird conversation where he never quite got around to saying why he wasn't carrying it, but he wasn't going to carry it. And I wound up printing the whole thing. I didn't realize it until about a month ago that I printed the entire conversation back back in the day in an issue of Puma Blues. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize how radical I was at the time doing <laughs> crazy stuff like that. So yeah, so he didn't carry Puma in his stores. You know, I was think it was a thousand copies, which was big for us because I yeah. think our entire print run was probably at best seventeen thousand copies back then. Mm-hmm. You know, it got down eventually to nine, um, but it started off at like seventeen. So dropping that much was a big deal. But this guy, I think Michael Zuli, my partner on Puma, always thought it was our content that upset this guy that we were too leftist. He was at the other end of the spectrum. Huh. He didn't want to carry us, but. There's no way to prove that. I guess there was uh, like a lot of environmental themes, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't remember it being uh, overly political at all. But of course, that's again, that's uh, how old when I this was uh, the mid mid to late eighties. So I'm talking, yeah, about, I'm, I'm in my late teens. Yeah, it was like eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight that period. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah I'm not even I mean, back yet. then you could even make fun of Muslims. I mean, it was a. <laughs> A different time. And by that, yeah. I don't mean make fun of I got right. No, I, I mean that we were able to talk about religion. And <laughs> Had a little talk. more freedom to talk about what yeah, we wanted to. Yeah, and even criticize religion. Right. You know, we did without thinking there'd be repercussions, you know. Yeah. Because you know, well, there, there, there weren't, weren't any. any right. right, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you get a letter from someone, but that would be... Yeah, you get yelled at, right. So anyway, yeah, the whole different time. Oh, that's interesting. And so, and so you were part of the, uh, uh, the you, you were even one of the signers of the original. Uh, I must have been cr- drunk because I don't remember signing it. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. People always say you were part of it. And I got to tell you, I was so not a part of it. I was there. Yeah. But I can remember being at these meetings and, you know, I love Scott McCloud. He was always, you know, but he's such a dominant personality that he was the centerpiece. You know, once he walked in after Dave kind of decided not to go forward as like the, the flag bearer um scott just took over and you know he had he came in with the bill of rights i mean he came in with a draft of it yeah but you know him frank miller um toddleben Bissett, they were the vociferous ones you know hmm. so the rest of us were just kind of sit around the table it's like they were like the center then there was the next group of people like peter laird that group and then the rest of us who were just the artists who were just kind of weren't really politicized about the whole thing um because we weren't working for the big companies and didn't think there was a need to have, like... I mean, we were in the indie thing, so what was, why right. was there a need for Bill of Rights when you were independent already? Right. Um, so we would sit there and doodle and drink. Because <laughs> there was always sitting in a restaurant or something. So, I, right. you know... And, and there's the origin of the drink and draws. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I can remember one thing that some of the guys used to draw was horrible. 
funny stuff. Like the Mirage artists would just start drawing really sexually rude things to pass among ourselves, and we'd be laughing our asses off because we were <laughs> drunk, and those guys would be talking about, you know, the forefathers of artists with this big serious conversation, and they just look at us every day and like, why are those guys here? <laughs> so it was pretty funny. But yeah, thanks for you know bringing it up. I mean, that's that's what started it. I mean, we were just. Yeah, whatever. Here it is. It's what freaking years later? Thirty years later? Right. And Crazy. Thirty years. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's not even thirty yet. <laughs> well, because you know, I used to uh, back around that time. That's when I was starting to get into, well, trying to get into comics. And of course, I still had my full time job. Thirty years ago. Uh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, almost uh, in around eighty, around nineteen eighty five. I think I published my very first uh, self published comic. Were you like three years old then? No, my good, no, no, my no, it's almost twenty. Really? Oh, this really? guy yeah. ages well. <laughs> oh, thank you. You can't see him, but <laughs> trust me. Um, Except for the canes. Oh yeah, t- two years later, I had uh, had a child. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he was also very fast. I'm way up there. Yes, <laughs> I'm ahead of the curve. Um, but well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I used to, I used to look at, you know, I used to look at people like you and all the people in the area, and you know, with just you know, great admiration because you guys had made it into the industry. And then when, of course, when the um, when the very first comic museum opened up in Northampton mm-hmm. in that uh, the Round House, whatever that That's whatever right, that House was, Tower. yep, um, and uh, I'd be able to go there and meet the comic creators and finding out that there was such a not just a big big society of comic creators in the area, but it was growing by leaps and bounds at the time. It just seemed that you know, more and more people were either coming into the area or the area was creating more uh, you know, more people that wanted to get into comics. And it was a it was a really fun and exciting time to kind of grow up in the uh, in the industry. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it was both those things happened. The museum brought people in, and yeah. as well as inspired local local people. Yeah, it was like you know we consider us. You know, I know we ever really talked about it, at Mirage, but I always consider us like the first generation of people who were here. We were slightly older. Then the museum opens, this other group comes in, and there's like a ten year difference in ages. Yeah, and all these new people come in, like Matt Smith, and Tom Papalardo, people that now are still active, um, Bryant Johnson. There was a whole group of people that I wasn't even aware of. I mean, at least a couple of dozen. People I didn't know, still don't know who they were, but they were there and circling yep. around and doing comics, and it was an interesting time. It was. It was. A, it was a lot of fun. I'm sure you remember it, Mike. No, I'm trying to get you into the conversation <laughs> here. You know, I, I feel like we're kind of uh, kind of pushing you to the side. No, no, no. I, I, you know, I mean, at this time, I was finishing high school and leaving for the Navy. I had, you know, I didn't have a driver's license, so I wasn't hanging out in Northampton. I missed. My my comics experience was the Rebel Peddler. Oh, and Treasure Island. Yeah, yep. and and it's you know so I I missed all of this community that you guys are talking about. Right, and well, didn't and, know anything about it. I guess uh, Rebel Peddler and Treasure Island were the two local comic stores, and they were the only comic stores at the no, at the time. No, Bob, uh, Bob's Hobbies was still here. Is that was that? Uh, oh no, I was talking uh, early eighties. He's been like, around for a long time. Has he? Because I don't remember. I remember Rebel Peddler being the only place in the area. And, of course, remember, at the time, I'm maybe 15 at the most, so Springfield was it. If I could get there on my bike, that was it. So I didn't know about any places in Northampton. Um, or yeah. yeah and, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure even when I was a little kid, Northampton was just up and coming. I think it was kind of... Uh, yeah, see, I'd get out of school, get on the downtown bus... And go to Treasure Island. Go to Treasure Island, right? And then hook the bus back up to Pine Point. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's also funny. I mean, you're, you're saying you missed uh, 
you know, you, you missed everything the with the community, the, days, the, the community the, days. And so I look back on it as I was kind of watching from the sidelines. I was one of the fanboys that was always there. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, I mean, I was, I was painfully shy. I mean, I wouldn't talk to people. And I would be, so I'd be one of those guys that would be sitting there and kind of, uh, I guess, in, in Internet terms now, just kind of trolling the, uh, the, the area. But I don't really talk to it. I never had the guts to go up and talk to people. You know, and every once in a while, I'd be fortunate enough where someone would come over. Whoops. Sorry. Uh, someone would come over and start talking to me. And that conversation was, would last as long as it took for them to get sick of my just sitting there smiling while they, while they, while they talked at me. Because I'm just in awe. Of the of these people, and also back then, I didn't have like a a real hierarchy. You were either in the industry or you weren't in the industry, you know. And so I go to the uh, started going to the comic conventions, and if you were the guy sitting behind the table, you were in the industry. And I and I was just in awe of you. It didn't matter if you were selling five copies of a photocopied mini comic or if you were selling you know fifty thousand copies of, you know, of of whatever. Yeah, it was just a, a, an amazing thing. And of course, when when, when I found out that the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were published locally, you know, because we you know that was that was a really big thing back in what eighty three or eighty four when it when it came out. Yeah, eighty four. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, it wasn't until I probably a good year later that I found out that they were local, and that was the kickstart for me to realize I can do this. I've been drawing comics, but it's been my goal to just work for Marvel. It didn't occur to me that I could publish my own work and, uh, and, and try see, to sell. I was it. the exact opposite. Like I said, missing the community. Yeah, it's almost embarrassing to admit, but pre Navy, my idea of comic books is what could I read. Yeah, I had no concept that there were actually uh, people working on these books or putting them together. It was just some magical form of entertainment oh, oh, that sure. showed up in my hands. Yeah, and, and and embarrassingly enough, and I'm finding this out now as I'm reading the old Roger Stern omnibus. Yes, I'm, Sp- Spider-Man. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I'm reading. They, they printed the letters pages in there. Yes, and and I like that because I'm actually reading the letters pages from back then, and I'm seeing letters from Northampton. Right, and it's funny, but. As a kid, I never the, the letters pages had nothing to do with the comic book. I never read one before now, and all of a sudden, I'm feeling. Now you know, I got out of the navy. I started traveling. Started going to comic book shows. I've met several of these, you know, Frank Millers and, and Dean Claranes, and and I'm getting to know people, and it, it, and it's great. I'm getting the sense of community. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, back then it was just well. And back then it was a lot more difficult too. I mean, you didn't have not, not only did you not have the conventions, but I mean, you you, you had the letter pages. Yes, that yeah. was it. In fact, right. that's what I mean. I was just looking at these. Um, Mike did a beautiful uh, job reimagining. How would that's you call it? Kelleher, <laughs> not Murray. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, I like the I like the reimagining. Okay, uh, on the cover to a, uh, an, a Kirby Sergeant Fury collection. Um, I guess it's the first volume of the Marvel Masterworks and softcover. Yeah. So I just popped it open to um, the death ray of Dr. Zemo, <laughs> and it says here, in, in credits, for the credits it says, Not a bad story by ex-Sergeant Stan Lee. Passable art by ex-Corporal <laughs> Dick Ayers. That, we're laughing, that, that is what got me into comics. Finding, you know, that sense of humor that came through on Marvel, coupled with the letters pages. When I was the same, I was like, wow, people wrote letters. I could write letters, and I could talk about things. And, and as a kid, I wound up writing letters, and uh, Marvel printed a few of them. In, uh, and I think it was like um, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu or oh. 
what a couple of the magazines, and I Beautiful. I look at those letters now, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm such an idiot. I'm gonna I'm gonna look but, those up. <laughs> but anyways, it was fun. It was that to me that was my community because yeah. I had one other friend who read comics, maybe a second kid as we get older, and there were no shows like you said. There were right. there was no comic book store. We would have to get on our bikes to go to the pharmacy, and, or, and we only had the comic the comic buyer's guide was the only okay. periodical, and uh, yeah, read and that for years. Yeah. In fact, it wasn't it wasn't until reading comics of the 70s and seeing ads for the comic buyer's guide in it <laughs> yes. that I wound up sitting there and realizing, oh my god, there's an entire community across this country. Right. There are shows in Boston. And so there was a great Boston show once a month called Sunday Funnies at um, Howard Johnson Sack 57. Oh wow, something. I've never even heard of this. Yeah, wow. it was. I don't know how long it lasted, but in high school we would get on the bus from in Worcester and go to Boston and go oh. into this show and met Howard Chaikin when I was a little kid and I wow. remember Von Bodie. You know, being freaked out by him because I'd never known that men could look so beautiful and, dre- and wear a dress. You know, I was just like, wow. Um, so, yeah, so that's it. That was a great community. Yeah. And it was by being rejected by Marvel, because I always wanted to write Marvel, that led me to say, well, you know what? I can do my own comics. And that's what led me to doing Puma Blues. Yeah. Because, you know, if I can't or I don't have good enough, good enough writing to get into Marvel, then at least I'll try out on my own and. Do stuff, so. But now I, I do want to interject, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and because it's I'm sure I'm sure it was an honest oversight. Uh-huh. But when you talk about not being a good enough writer, you not only did you have your turtles experience in Puma Blues, which you co-created, but you've been Harvey nominated for your miniseries Umbra. That's only because I emailed every friend I know and said, <laughs> "Seriously, that's how I felt after getting nominated." Well, I, I worked it. But anyway, I, I, thank you for saying that. You but, may but, have, I'll, but I'll say this. You know, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, but I did, there was a point in uh, Marvel's history, and I think it was about 1982, 83, when Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. And he said in, a, in this in a Marvel bullpen page that Stan had initiated, and now Jim was writing, he said, we're looking for writers. And I was like, holy crap, we're looking for writers. You know, like, I don't know what to do with my life. I was just graduating from college. I know, I'll write for Marvel. be that easy. <laughs> So he wanted two well-detailed plots. And so I wrote up these two plots. One was a Spider-Man plot featuring um, the Tarantula character, the villain. Um, and the other was a Captain America plot involving Deathlock coming back from the future to assassinate the president. And I sent them in. And sure enough, a month later, I get a letter back. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like, I open it, and it was a, you know, 8 half by 11 piece of paper. Typed in the center were the words... Something like Dear Murph, or Dear Murphy, or whatever you wrote. I still have it somewhere. Um, <laughs> you know, you're close, but not close enough. Yeah. Jim Shooter. And instead of saying, "All right, I'm going to keep trying," I said, "F you. <laughs> I'm going to. I'll do my own comics." So, anyways, the thing that fascinated me was like three years later, there's a three-part uh, Captain America storyline. Art by Mike Zeck, and it's when Deathlock comes back from the future. And I don't know what he came to do anymore. I don't remember them. I don't have the comics anymore. But I remember thinking, crap, you know, when I bought the comics, I was like, yes, here's the core of my idea. And I thought, my God, how many thousands of kids wrote in plots, you know, college students, that they stole, you know, or did they steal the good ones, you know, like, or does this mean, oh, my plot was good enough that he could steal it? Maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I do know how to write comics. Right, right. I think. Jim Shooter. And the fascinating thing about it, here's the punchline, is when I went to the Harvey Award ceremony and didn't win, it was Jim Shooter who was presenting the award 
their best writer. <laughs> I what wanted to find him and say, tell him the story, but he disappeared. I couldn't. I, I look. I look back and. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of lament the idea that I didn't. I, I took I took things I took rejections much too personally. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't push myself because I, I think it was back in the early '90s. I was I sent a bunch of a bunch of stuff to Marvel, and they weren't responding, and so I just kept sending more and more things. And then they finally responded, and it wasn't a uh, it wasn't the oh my god we love you come work for us response that I was hoping for. And so I pretty much just stopped and I started doing my own my own work. But at the same time, then by doing my own work, I very slowly came to the realization I was nowhere near ready to work for Marvel. You know, in my, you know, my, my work, uh, I could see, I, I started getting that kind of self-awareness. And so my arrogance quickly turned to, um, I don't know, uh, this self-awareness that was detrimental because now everything that even to this day everything that I do I feel it's just it's just not good enough you know and we're all that, like that right, we're the same way and I've I've come to a realization especially recently that uh, that's that's just the artist's way what it was the an artist never an artist never finishes a piece they abandon it and I'm you know I'm finding that uh, you know that I'm always kind of in that uh, in that mode where I always want to keep going back and and revisiting and even at almost fifty years old it's it I, I find that it's it's something I've got to constantly fight against you know as as an artist and even with writing and it's, um, you you when you were talking about the Captain America idea that you sent in. And it reminded me of, uh, I think it was, might have been at least 15 years ago, uh, The Tick. I love The Tick. And they put a call out. They wanted they wanted some uh, new creative team. And they were looking for some a new writer and a new artist. And I thought, I could probably try to do both. And I came up with some art samples, which even to this day, I look back, I think, I think the art samples were, were really good. But I can also see how it didn't fit with the character. It was a little too... Heroic. Uh, it wasn't cartoonish and funny enough. It, may, it, it. I wasn't catching that nuance of comedy that you needed. That Ed, Edlund, Ed, Ed, Edlund, Ed yeah, because yeah. he, he was a genius at that. But it, so also, I, I wrote a bunch of stories, a bunch, I think three, and sent them over to, to them. And you know, I, I got the, the the basic, you know, we, you know, don't for, for the artwork. It was the don't call us, we'll call you kind of uh, response. But then for the stories, they said. Uh, yeah, um, you know we you know we appreciate your your sending it in, but it's, it, it, it's basically derivative of everything else that we're getting. And I'm thinking, really, I thought I came up with some really incredibly uh, unique ideas, but you know they're they're telling me that that it's pretty much I'm just rehashing other stuff. And sure enough, as I tried writing things over the years, I'm always finding myself in that falling into this little space where I come up with something really great and then I go to a friend and say, I came up with this great idea and it's XYZ and they say, oh, you're talking about Star Wars or something like that. It's, it's always something that has, has already been out already been out there you know, and it's it's tough. Yeah. Well, you know, stuff, you know, but that, that might be true. Like, I, I teach a graphic novel writing class every semester and I always have to remind people that, yeah, you know, your ideas might not seem so original. I'm not saying that you're, they're specific ideas, but we might think of our own ideas as not being original. But what what makes them original is the voice we bring to our and the style we bring to it. You know, hmm. so they could be, you know, in a sense, you may think, oh, I was influenced by that without even realizing I was influenced by that. Or, gee, the other guy had this, or the woman had this idea over in England. You know, that's okay. It's it's the it's the uniqueness of the person. 
that you put into your art. It's how you, know? you how you tell the story it's and how not you the tell story. The story it's the way you tell it. That's exactly yeah. what you were saying earlier when you thought that uh, Stan Lee might have been influenced by that book. Right. I was telling Mike uh, before coming to Mike Murray before coming over here that um, I just read this 1953 novel that, not, as far as I know, has not been reprinted. I just found an old paperback, and it's called Mutant, and it's about. Um, the core idea is that there's been some limited nuclear war and radiation has leaked out and mutated humanity, some of humanity. So the, the mutations that don't work, you know, like double heads and you know, 18 breasts or whatever, fall aside, but the telepathy mutation catches on. And the people that have the telepathy gene are bald, okay? Huh. And I thought, <laughs> I mean, bald, telepathic, it's wow. called mutant... <laughs> Huh. Could Stan have read this and then... Interesting. You know, and it, that's obviously his time, his, his time period. X, right. It was just before the whole X-Men thing. And I was like, oh, maybe it was just circulating back in his brain. Sure. However, you know, as a writer, I know that we all steal from other people sometimes, without even being aware of it. Right. Know? Yeah. Because at this point in, in our uh, humanity, um, is it possible to come up with something completely new? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think so. You know... I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I know we were also, before coming on the air, we talked about um, whether or not we love comics. You mentioned a friend of yours, a colleague who doesn't necessarily like comics anymore. Although he works in comics, is that true? Yes. Yep. And and as you were telling that story, I was thinking, wow, I've come to the, I've gone through phases in my life where, you know, all my early life, I loved comics like anything. Once I started working in comics, I didn't like it so much anymore. (laughs) It was interesting. Yes. And I stopped buying comics like Marvel and stuff. I missed out on most of the 90s of Marvel. I said all of it. Like it was a DC. It's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but since leaving Mirage Studios five years ago and no longer working on comics and stuff, when DC launched this new 52 thing like back in, was that 2010? Was it that long ago? Oh, my goodness. I think it was yeah. summer. It was either yeah. August 2010 or 2011. But it was within a year of leaving Mirage. That I walked in a comic store in Worcester, that's Entertainment, which is, I think, my favorite oh, yeah. comic book store. I know that place, yeah. Yeah, great store, great staff. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> yours is the best online store. Okay. <laughs> yours has the best personal service, even though it's online. Um, you don't have to talk to him face-to-face. Face. He is now my store, I should point out that Mike is my store, okay? Because uh, Worcester's an hour and a half away. Whoever. Okay, so what was the point? So I walk in, and, and they have something you can't do. They've got all this wall space. No, you know, okay. and that's what the parties are for. But I understand <laughs> all the comics that come up, you know, are displayed on the wall. Like this wall is like, I don't know, it's got to be like 100 feet long, and then it L's off into another 30 feet, and they keep comics up for several months at a time, mm-hmm. which is great. So you can get runs of a uh, recent runs yeah. of books. Yeah. So after not liking comics for years, suddenly the DC 52 launching got me back into the store, and I realized wow, comics still do suck. <laughs> Except there are some good ones, you know, because I hate the event stuff, you know, and I was yes. so lost. Like, I picked up a few Marvel comics wanting to, like, get, I'm like, oh, X Men, I can't wait to get back into X Men. Until I realized there were 14 different X Men titles, I'm like, which one is the one I want to read? Right. Which one's the best, you know? And then I would pick up any book, and I'm like, what? The War is a Woman? I mean, like, you know, all this weird things happened that I felt completely adrift. But I went to the indie section, and and I found books I liked, you know, and, and Dark Horse especially, I think. Um, the whole world of Hellboy is just, I, I just love. But anyway, in the past couple of years, through Mike's great comic book service, 
I have bought a lot of new comics I would never have tried. And I think that we're going through this period right now. I find that there's a lot of titles out there that I will buy the first issue up and go, my gosh, this is fantastic. However, I'm not going to commit monetarily to buying every issue. I'm going to wait till it's on sale as a trade. The trade, oh, yes. Only because of, because of the pricing. Yep. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff out right now. Well, and, and, and you're right, because uh, the, the, the sad thing is right now, you get a little bit of interest in one title or one issue, and then you realize that the amount of uh, money and time it's going to take to kind of catch up on that story like with the X-Men. If you, if you like one issue, you're going to have to read everything around it to try to understand what's going on. It's not like when we, when we were younger, you pick up an issue of Spider-Man, you like Spider-Man, you can go out, and although it was a lot harder to hunt down the issues, you know, but you didn't have to worry about... Uh, yeah, every once in a while, it would spread out to... You know, Spider-Man would be in an issue of Fantastic Four or something like that. And very rarely they would continue from one right. series to another. But that was a very rare occurrence. It was easy to easy to keep up. And that's oh, and that's also why I like uh, a lot more. I'm more apt to give a chance to an indie book than to uh, to anything for anything for Marvel. You know, and the reason I have for that is like I've picked up a lot of Marvels in the past few years that I've liked. The first issue, but by the fourth issue, the art is they change artists. Yes. And the thing that would draw me to the book is the art and the writing. Yeah. And then literally five issues later, even though it's the same storyline, the artist is gone. Yeah. And I, you know, I hate to say some artists aren't as good as others, you know, but there are those that I have my favorites, you know, <laughs> or, or things that people have come to know. And I can't stand that. But where an indie book, you're not going to have that because these are the people who committed to the thing they've created and they right. stay there. Yeah. Well, and, it, of course, that's just the nature of the beast. You know, with, yeah. you know, with Marvel, they have to have that out at the you know, uh, on time. Where an indie guy, they can say, you know what, for whatever reason, either, either it's taking me longer to figure it out, I'm not happy with what I did, so I'm going to redo it, or just, hey, I needed to take some time I'm, off. They can I'm, let the I'm books come out there, Mike, a little because, more uh, uh, in, infrequently. In Marvel's case... Hawkeye, which was one of the books you did enjoy, Steve. Yes, sir. Was notoriously late. In some mm. cases, months and months and months. I cut slack for Matt Fraction, though. And, <laughs> and, uh, and on the DC side, uh, this new, um, the, uh, the Sandman Overture became a quarterly series mm. because J.H. Williams' paintings couldn't be done in a time, or they solicited it too quickly. He didn't have enough of the story done. Mm. So, so they changed that from being late to now it's a you know four times a year. But as a buyer, a reader, I would rather wait for the team to come out. Like, I also and think I that understand they, that, yeah. but I think there should be more of a pre solicit or pre solicitation yeah. because be honesty between the creators and the as a, as a as a as a seller, when you're telling me I've got a quarterly book, there's a lot that happens in a three month span. Mm-hmm. Whether it's readership? somebody, whether it's somebody loses interest, or oh. somebody loses a job, or somebody decides, I forgot all about that. Yeah. Because the attention span now is so quick. What I do like about that's the, one thing about getting old. It isn't. You just have to really. You can wait. Yeah. It's the new young people who are always on their phones. But what yeah. what I do like about the indies is like you. is the um, uh, yeah I'm never on my phone. <laughs> my wife wonders why I have one. Um, Call me. The. Uh, <laughs> The, the creators have have the uh, ability to tell their stories. Yeah, it's not you know it's not like they're at Marvel or DC and holding back the great characters that they're worried they're going to lose ownership of, which I think we discussed a little bit last time I was here. Yeah, you know the, it, it, when they're working in the independent market, they're able to tell the stories they want in the fashion they want, and and it, it makes for some very compelling stories. Yeah, yeah, right. stories that take chances. 
and when people die, they die. You don't come back three months later. What? You know, with six of their clones. Right. Or in That's some that. cases, when they killed the Winter Soldier, they brought him back in the same damn issue. <laughs> well, you know, quick turnaround. Yeah. But, you know, something else I think that Marvel does is, I forget what X-Book had launched a few years ago, but it had Chris Bacalow on the, on the art. I love his art. I love how it's changed. Is, is, that, is that how you pronounce his name? I don't know, actually. Oh, okay. Well, how is it pronounced? I, I, I thought it was Bacalow. Okay, perhaps but, uh, it is. Okay. I always botch these things up. Yeah, I, so, and I, but we'll I don't say, know either, so I, you know, don't, don't we'll take that Bacalow. as a... We'll say Bacalow. Okay. <laughs> All right, to be fair. Okay, I always think that they put artists like that, like their top-tier artists, on a book knowing these are going to be authored by issue five because they're just trying to get that book sold and get those readers hooked. You know, then they started up with, you know, someone else comes in that may not be at that oomph. Yeah. Well, that could be me. Uh, yeah, but in the comics right now, there's a lot of things. I think Image has really got a lot going on. Image is doing a lot. I, I, d- I hear a lot of good things about Image, but I have not given them a single shot. I've ne- I never liked them back in the 90s, and I just, I just stayed, with the exception of uh, the Max. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else that I really enjoyed. I would occasionally pick up an issue of Spawn. I was usually um, uh, I enjoyed very all of it sporadic. when it first started, but that's because I was the original Marvel zombie. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're just following the guys over I was there. following the guys, and, and, yeah. and, and, and I loved it. I loved it. I, I, I even enjoyed Youngblood. Um, what? <laughs> I I'm even enjoyed Youngblood. Um, but I didn't enjoy the second iteration of it. It, it, for me, it was I read that first story arc. That was it. Did you like Supreme? I I wasn't there for Supreme. Okay. By then, I'd already lost well, interest. Alan Moore came on Supreme. It got good. And uh, never and read I, it. No. Yeah. Uh, who was the artist? Who, um, Chris Sprouse. Uh, great, great artist. Mm. Um, Can't answer that. But I mean, yeah. but like right now, Image has got a big thing again. Like when they were created with the the, the creator books, they're bringing in Straczynski and uh, Brubaker and. Uh, Matt Fraction. They're bringing all these top name guys in and saying, "Do your thing," and they've got these little stories, whether they're three issues, five issues, eight issues, whatever, and they're doing them. And uh, in fact, yeah, we I were agree. talking that's about great, that this morning. Period for that. We were talking about this this morning, and that that's the problem is, 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 <laughs> is there's there's so much that comes out monthly from Image, brand new, yep. and most of it seems to fizzle away. But what what hits the ground running? takes off. They've got some really good stuff that's just... See, and the, 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 the weird thing is, and just kind of going back to that mentality of being in the, uh, being in the, in the comic industry, I you know, kind of lost my, I don't want to say taste for comics, but my desire. I mean, when I, when I was younger, even into my 30s, I mean, I was just voracious. I mean, I would, you know, I, would, I just wanted everything, uh, anything that came out. I was, you know, I was picking up, and I would try almost anything that I could, uh, that I could get my hands on. I don't have that. But you're talking about d- books were thirty five cents. Oh, no, my good, no. they were. I think I think it was like a buck twenty. Yeah, uh, at, least, at least a buck twenty five uh, when I kind of started slowing down. Um, but yeah, so I, but I don't know if it's because uh, if because I'm in the industry. If my tastes have changed, if I've gotten old, or if it's just too, it's just so big and convoluted now that I don't see any hope okay. of kind of jumping into Marvel again and getting into that kind of stuff. Well, but, but, but at the same time, like that's I just what said, Secret Wars is all about. Is no, the continuity no. is gone. Yeah, but you know they're going to they're well, gonna the continuity is gone. Again. Really? Yeah. Yes. For sure. Marvel is Marvel is undoing their all their years of uh, continuity to start anew. 
oh, I hate that. <laughs> just keep the, you know, like, make the company make sense. You know, like, I hate it when they start renumbering things with number one. It's just like, I, would buy, I want to buy Daredevil number 5062. <laughs> you know, I want that number. Well, not only that, but... Even if it's in the Andesha somewhere, not I only, see, I've been buying this since issue 72. Let me, let me tell you something. Not only that, as, as, <clears> a, uh, as a retailer, one of the most awful questions I get is, can you get me X-Men number one? Or Spider-Man number one. <laughs> or, you know, which one do you want? Because now there's about seven of them. You know? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll take that as an opportunity to kind of uh, uh, very quickly jump into you know the, the, the original intent of this podcast, which, of course, was to talk about the art restoration and the old comics and things like that. But the funny thing is, when we were working out the warehouse and going through all the film, the decades worth of uh, you know, film and... Um, uh, photocopies of the of the of the artwork that they would use that they would use for print. That was a very common thing that we were running into, even uh, for books by the uh, by the eighties and nineties, where we would find something that's labeled Spider Man number one. Now, of course, what does that mean? We open it up, and of course, it's spectacular Spider Man number one, and you would you would have like four or five different copies of it, and they're all labeled very uh, very similar sim- similarly. Um, and so you have the you know the McFarlane number one. You got the spectacular Spider-Man number one, which is Peter Parker. You can, uh, of course, there's Amazing Spider-Man. There's Web of Spider-Man. And so even even Tangled in terms web of Spider-Man. Right. <laughs> but even later on, there was a spectacular number one. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was not right. Peter Parker. Yeah. Where is this warehouse? Um, can you bring me? I, oh, I would I, love I, to I, see this. Uh, I'm not, although I'm pretty sure it is publicly known. I'm not going to say where it is on right. on the air, although I'm pretty sure it is. But I'd East have, Coast? I'll have to ch- I'll have to check. I will I will uh, tell you after we're oh, off, like off the air. Shield. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Oh, but, oh, I have I, I have I have stories I could. Yeah, I will. I, anyways, I could, I could, I could so tell. anyways, you have but, to get, like can I ask these questions and you sure. can say no or not? Yes. So like. These, it's actually warehouse. You go in and everything's like piles of like art. Let me let me give you let me yeah, give yeah. you a very quick rundown of it. So um, we're going to do a comic two, book about this. Two thousand eight. Right? I think it was around two thousand eight so or cool. two thousand nine. My editor for the Marvel Masterworks, Corey uh, Corey Settlemeyer. Thank you. Feldman. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, much more handsome than Corey uh, Corey Feldman. He. He tells me that he's going to the, uh, the Marvel warehouse to sort out the film because we were having problems with you know, when we're working to re. I'm just going to uh, just pull out my hat. We're going to uh, we're going to restore Fantastic Four Volume One. He would call the warehouse in the secret location, and they would scan the film for us and send the scans over, and then we'd work on them. But he was finding that there were a lot of problems because, like, like I was just saying, things are just mismatched. And so he'll ask for Fantastic Four number one, and he'll get some other kind of printing of Fantastic Four number one. Um, also, we found out that at some point when uh, – oh, you Spider-Man because it's easier. Uh, Spider-Man was reprinted constantly throughout the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s through Marvel Tales. And so what we found what they were doing is what they would take – the original film for this is the Amazing Spider-Man number fifty, and they would take that and they might alter it. They might redraw a panel for whatever reason. Um, they might go through and any reference that was originally President Kennedy would all be changed to President Ford because that's the president in, uh, in, in the White House wow. at the time. And so they would make little things like that. And where our goal for Masterworks is to make everything perfect, uh, uh, perfect to the original printing. 
And, uh, and to expand on that, we, uh, our goal is to make it perfect to the original printing and make it look like what the artist would have wanted it to look like if printing wasn't so crappy back uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, you get to urge to like, change President Kennedy to like Lincoln. Really we, we did find some very weird, and, uh, and nothing's coming. To, that'd, that'd be an interesting subject. I'll just make a list of all the really weird, thi- weird changes that That's we found, uh, uh, and it, especially on covers, we find that covers get changed uh, quite a bit. Anyway, so you haven't given us a location yet. No, no. <laughs> so there it's was uh, the America's waiting. <laughs> there was a lot of a uh, lot of wasted time, a lot of wasted money, just from uh, asking for the the film and getting the wrong ones. And then, of course, we uh, we started finding out that there were multiple copies of some of these things, and some of them were better copies than others. As you know, if you may, uh, well, you might in the digital age, people might not know this, but in the days of photocopiers, you make a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, and the quality deteriorates with every copy that you make. I remember you're, those you're, days. Exactly. Michael Keaton taught us that multiplicity. That's right; it, 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 it deteriorates, and so there were multiple copies, and we we had no control over which copy these people would scan because they're just in the warehouse and they got a scanner and we tell them so there's a random if there's four copies of uh, spider-man number 50 they're just going to grab one down scan and send it to us so Corey realized that there was a necessity to go over and fix all this so he calls me and says i'm not going to be available for a couple weeks because i'm going to be at the warehouse and i'm like oh that is so cool he's like no he's, he's, he's i've been i've been to the warehouse it's not cool i'm like oh but it's all the film he's like don't worry about it and, you know blah 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 Two weeks later, he, he, I don't remember if he called or emailed, but the, uh, the, the basic gist of it was, we need help. Can you come down and, uh, and help us? And I said, hell yeah. I could Because I, 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 had, I had this vision. And I'll, I'll, I'll give the, the, the story that I know Mike's, Mike's probably heard before. So in my head, I'm going to hop on a plane. I'm going to go to land in a secret location. And like a paramilitary group is going to pick me up in a black armored car, drive me to this uh, like a field, and there'll be like one of those big steel doors that you open up and it leads you down into a giant bunker. And we'll take an elevator forty floors down, and we'll the, the doors will open up, a bright light will come on. There'll be a giant marble it's hallway. Jasper. Yeah, what <laughs> pillars of the Hulk and Thor holding up the ceiling forty feet high. I uh, and then you know Stan Lee would come out. Dressed in a uh, uh, dressed in a smoking jacket like uh, like Hugh Hefner coming and say, "Oh, welcome, Mike. Uh, welcome to the uh, true believer." The, the, yeah, oh yeah, Excelsior. Uh, Excelsior. And okay. the reality was, I got off the plane. My editor what? picked me up. There was a plane. Up. Wait, was, no, all right. So we're in New England. Okay, <laughs> oh, so no, there was a plane. Involved. I'm very lazy though, so oh, you don't know okay. how right. I, I, I'll take a plane Who's to Northampton. And so, yeah, he picked me up in a rental car, and we drove Illinois. to this uh, just dilapidated uh, warehouse. Okay, go on. Sparta, Illinois. That's my guess. But go on. Why are you guessing Sparta, Illinois? Is that where they printed the comics years ago? It's where they filmed In the Heat of the Night. Oh. The original movie. It, okay. <laughs> but... You are absolutely right. The original warehouse was in Sparta, Illinois, because huh? that huh? is Who's a comic geek where here? Who gets to wear the magic hat <laughs> that today? is where most of the comics were were printed. Uh, was it called World Color or something like that? Later, it was called World Color. Uh, I forget where it started. And so, um, but now the thing is, I mean, there's a bigger story to that. The warehouse, the warehouse wasn't always there. Ah. 
there was a there's a huge oh, story of, of of film being tra- of traveling around for decades, which I'm not even completely sure about. Anyway, this warehouse was was just was just horrible, and so. My first day, I'm all excited, and I got to meet a couple new people, including uh, Wes- Wesley Wong, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, who works with me on uh, on Masterworks. And I'm all excited, but my editor and his uh, his friend, who's helping him go through everything, they thought it was going to be like a two week uh, a, 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 a two week chore to go through and just relabel everything. Um, everything in the warehouse. Everything in the okay. warehouse, which turned out to be, I'm going to guess, 75 to 100,000 different pieces of material. And by pieces of material, I mean like a roll of film, which, of course, then a roll of film is 20, could be up to 20 different sheets. You know, so there, there were literally millions of sheets of paper that we had to go through. Um and anyway, so he tells me what we need to do, and I'm all excited. And within an hour or so, I run across the film for Amazing Spider-Man number one. I'm all excited. I feel like I've like I've won the lottery. And I'm like Corey, Corey, I, I, I found Amazing Spider-Man number one. And he's like, oh, another one. Throw it in a pile. And let's uh, just keep going. There was and. Uh, that it just deflated that balloon of, of happiness that I had, and it very quickly realized this is just a job, and we have to go through. And we, with very little exception, we weren't able to sit down and really just kind of look and enjoy what we were doing because we had, at the time, we thought we had one week to go through almost a hundred thousand pieces of material. Fast forward three years later when we no. finally finished. No. Yes, really? it was three summers. Uh, it, t- it took us uh, three summers to go through because uh, you know, none of us could just pack up and relocate over here. For the, and then uh, the warehouse was relocated uh, to a new to a uh, new modern facility. Beautiful. That's not in Sparta, Illinois. It is not in Sparta, Illinois. <laughs> All right, so uh, now we got to figure out where it is. <laughs> but yeah, it, um, and it was fast. I have. I'll, I'll show you pictures. Um, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. We uh, the the one thing that we were all hoping that we would find that we didn't find, not us, absolutely no original art. Oh, we were because we knew that uh, Bob had gone through and returned everything to uh, to all the artists back in like the early '80s or mid '80s, whatever. Thank but, you for your bill of rights. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> I was the guy in the back drinking. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, we were hoping that we would run across it. We figure with all this, all this material that they had no idea where anything was, that there was a very good chance that there would be something kind of laying in there. So I don't know if they had some different kind of system for filing original art or whatever it was, but we found absolutely nothing. We found some really great material, including lots of really high quality photocopies of like the uh, of the artwork before it shot the film. So it, it's basically a photocopy of the original art. It's like looking at the original art. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, that was some that's really, cool. and that helped us to uh, go through. And uh, w- w- it's it's funny. We had a lot of people complain about this for a couple of years because after we went through the the warehouse and we found all this great new source material, all nice clean artwork and like copies copies of original art. Uh, Marvel was gracious enough to fund us to go back and fix a lot of this stuff that we had already done. Now, I realized Marvel had already spent a fortune having us uh, restore this material originally. They were letting us go back and restore it again 
to get a better a better quality, not just better quality, but the uh, more the, accurate the as close to perfect as we could possibly get. Like I said, up and until um, we've gone from paper to digital. I don't know what's going to come after digital. Could be telekinesis or something. I don't know. But until that format changes, this stuff is never going to need to be revisited. I, uh, for all intents and purposes, I should be the last hands that ever need to touch this material. They'll be able to use it, reprint it, uh, for, for as, as long as uh, printing technology is the way that it is. Pa- ink on paper, it'll never need to be need to be redone. Will they throw away the physical stuff, you think? Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, there's, there's, there has to be a, uh, there has to be a value to all, to all this stuff. Oh, of course, um, but and, 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 and talking are... about values, can I ask you for a PSA real quickly? Yeah. Get on eBay and you look, and there are many, many uh, auctions mm-hmm. for these acetate uh, production. They are all frauds. Every single okay. one of them. There is no, uh, and they claim to be uh, part right. of the. Uh, and I, and I, I was a printer for fifteen years. None of this. The, the, the stuff that they're selling doesn't even fit into the the, the production process. We, we never needed acetates for for any of this stuff. Um, I don't know if we, we we've talked about this. There's we have a number of theories. It could be a person that used to work on Masterworks and they're taking copies of this stuff and uh, you know just is selling them. But the the paper trail doesn't match up. You know we we haven't been able to lead back to anybody that's done the work. Uh, what, were um, they, what are you saying? So the acetate is over a blue lines sheet that they color on. No, no, that, what that's, they, no. What are they selling? They, sure. That's well. That's the puzzling thing. It's just they, an they, right? They say just a black uh, overlay. Yeah, because the, they'll sell. Yeah, they'll sell a a, a cop. Uh, it, it's a the line art. Right. Uh, of and, but they uh, sell it as original art. Okay. Well, no. Well, well, well here, here's here's how they do. Here's how they do it. Yes. Exactly. Right. Production art. Because you know, at Mirage, they did make acetate 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 acetates for the colorists. Right. Right. He, right. Yeah. Oh. Th- this isn't what they're claiming. Okay. Yeah. They're they're claiming that this is part of the production line for uh, the Mar- uh, for the archives for the Marvel Masterworks oh. and the DC DC things. Uh, yeah. Because well, um, some of them that I looked at are claiming that they're even uh, production lines from the original comics, like Amazing right. Spider-Man One Twenty Nine. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, now, if they, if they had something like that oh, for like um, God Love Man Kills, the uh, X Men uh, graphic novel type right. thing, where Steve Olive, of course, he would take he would have an acetate of the original art, and then he would paint underneath that. So yes. you know, um, and that way they can get the nice crisp lines on top of, it, but still have a painted feel uh, to it. Because you know, back then, you know, obviously we didn't have digital. Everything it was a lot different being able to to create create things back then. Um, and so, if they have something like that, sure, there's a chance that it could that it could be. But if they have Amazing Spider-Man number one, you know, one twenty-nine, page eight, and it's an acetate or you know whatever, and it has all these perfect uh, what we call the registration marks, the little uh, little X's that you see on the on the sides of the paper, or little colored boxes, it's it's all BS. It's it's all make believe. Why well, would yeah. be separated from the colored art that would be under it? it right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Those are always a painstakingly lined. Oh, well, and and even the, um, I've seen the original. I've seen the original film. It looks nothing like this. Huh. It's very haphazard. It was thrown together very quickly. All, all very professional. And you, it, right. And so yeah, all, all that stuff is just it's fake. Wow. Yeah. And so when you say film that, that are in these in this warehouse somewhere that you're going to tell us about later. Yeah. Where? How big are these? Because I remember seeing some of the sheets for five. They're about. Uh, oh, oh, um, they are certainly 
uh, a little bit bigger than that uh, drawing you're seeing there. So I'm going to guess uh, 24 by no, well, 24 by 30 is probably a little bit too big. But something, yeah, they're they're as big as a poster. They're they're giant because it's usually four sheets, you know, yeah, four sheets up. We have film, which of course uh, sometimes were negatives. We'd have paper, which were just kind of the positives on on paper. And there, uh, in some cases, there were multiple formats that this stuff was uh, was saved in. And so Marvel was meticulous about saving things, but they weren't uh, very careful about how they organized everything. Yeah. It's tough. Even in, in Mirage Studios, there was a point where we decided to organize the files, and it was a mess. And yeah. it was a mess even after we got done, but it was a better, cleaner mess than it was before because right. it's just it's so much material. Yeah. And that's just a company that had, what, 60 books or, you know? Well, you look, you, you look at... Um, it, plus, especially in the digital age, it's a lot easier because we are, we are able to sit down and we go through the physical uh, labor of sorting through everything, verifying that you know what what this is. You know, some things weren't labeled; we had to figure out. That's why they needed comic geeks to be there. They couldn't hire uh, minimum wage uh, college kids to come over. They needed to be able to recognize. That's Jack Kirby art. It's obviously Fantastic Four. I know it's somewhere within this range. And so then we'd hop on the internet and research uh, what it was. So we'd be able to figure out. So there's a lot of detective work. And that was so much fun. And I loved it. I wish, I wish there was a way that I could make that my living where I'm just sorting through comic books. But uh, uh, obviously it's not that big of a Which reminds <laughs> not big me, need. When John gets his uh, vacation, he wants to come over and work for you again. <laughs> well, all the comics are in order, so... Yeah, he, he did a good he did a good job. Yeah, I had uh, I had Mike's son come over and I hired him to uh, put my co- my vast comic collection in order because I was constantly running into problems. My, my my comic collection was a disaster. How, for how after, many copies? How many comics you got? Uh, I think uh, at least ten thousand. Jesus, I'm guessing. What the hell? Yeah, and then and then. So the guy who, who the guy who just said he'd love to be able to do this for a living, you know, yeah, just well. paid somebody else to do it for him. <laughs> well, because I don't have time because I'm busy where, where, doing where do you keep them? in that room right over there. Oh, and, oh, and in the basement. So, yeah. so ten thousand. Uh, how many? Four hundred comics go into a long box. Three. About three hundred. Yeah, I got. I so have thirty. I have thirty boxes in there. Uh, well, uh, probably like thirty-three or thirty-four boxes in there. I got boxes downstairs, like cases. Boxes, right? I, ha- I have at least I have at least fifty boxes. Uh, uh, they're not all long boxes, though. Okay. Yeah, so I got I have at least uh, at least fifty boxes. Jesus, I start feeling crazy when I've got like four long boxes full, and I'm like, I gotta cut back. <laughs> I mean, I've been for years. I sit here and I say, and I tell my wife Deb, uh, Debbie, I said, Deb, all right, I'll do it. I'm gonna start selling my comic collection. And she says, no, you're not. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it this time. And I, I, I guess, uh, you know, thankfully, I've, I've never had a uh, drug or alcohol problem. But I'm assuming it's that same kind of thing where you say, well, I'm, I'm not going to have that drink. But then you see the alcohol. And it's like, so I'd say, I'm, I'm going to sell these comics. And then I pick them up and I start going through them. I was like, well, I don't want to sell this one. I'm not going to well, buy another X-Men. Right. That brings me back to two thoughts. Is one when you said that you were uh, disappointed or, or not happy with the comics right now? Yeah. Like I said, I'm reading that Roger Stern Amazing Spider-Man omnibus, and I got to tell you, it really stood the test of time. That's uh, some wonderful. It's song. making me feel yep. just the way I felt when I was a kid and reading it for the first when time. When I read the Kid Who Liked Spider-Man a couple weeks ago, when we had Heather, uh, I don't know if you read, the, uh, if you heard that episode, we had Heather read the Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. 
and I was so disappointed by her response, by her reaction to it. But I reread it for the first time in years, and I, I loved it. I mean, it, it's, it's it fantastic. still works. It's st- it's still and a you great know that story. whole that whole age that I mean, Ramita never drew better than that. I, well, I'm a, I'm, we, we've had this conversation. I'm a, I'm a Ramita fan. I do, I do believe that you can kind of tell when he's into the project that he's uh, that he's working on. But I mean, yeah, those but, were some great years for him. Oh yes, and, yeah. and 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 Roger Stern. I mean, I don't know where he came from. He must have been the guy who was close enough. Sorry, Steve. no, he precedes me. In time, but uh, so. but that 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 run really worked, and it's it's magical. As opposed to, you know, I mean, I don't feel like I'm missing Spider-Man now by not reading it. Right. Now, now, uh, holy crap, I forgot what I was going to say. Well, second point. Yeah, yeah. second point. I was love a, comics. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. It's probably, that's it, a good time to, oh, no, no, a good I, place to wrap it up anyway. You're running I, uh, out of time I ended up, I ended up selling most of my key Spider-Mans for, uh, to pay for my wedding. I did the same thing. And I told my not wife. Your wedding. My <laughs> wife, I told my wife, I said, uh, this is going to be easy. I said, this is going to be easy. I've got them all in Masterworks now. What do I need the originals for? Well, let me tell you how many times I've uh, tried replacing some of those. I was there. just, I, I sold all my Spider-Man and, and, uh, when we bought our first house, and I have since replaced almost all of them, and now I'm saying I should probably. Because when, when I first sold them, I mean, there was an emotional attachment. Spider-Man was the first, uh, the first comic I ever collected. I still um, have mine. I have my father, of course, bought, paid for most of the books you know, growing up, and so having lost my father a few years ago, there was that you know that attachment. So I, I, the, the very first uh, Spider-Man that he ever ever bought for me on the stands, number one seventy-seven, bought down the street. It's now it was a convenience store. Now it's a bank because, um, of course, you can't get comics at convenience stores anymore. But sadly, I find a personal connection to almost every book. That I have in there. Well, any book that's worth any any money, I have I have long boxes full of junk that I've never read that were either just given to me or things that I bought hoping that I'll read eventually. And I'd start reading, and and I was stupid. I would go. I'd find it. I'd hear about a series that I'm interested in. I wouldn't buy the first couple issues. I'd buy the run, and so I'd buy twenty or thirty books and then read the first couple issues. Like, oh, this sucks, and just uh, throw it that's aside. That's the warehouse right here behind me? Yeah, yes. <laughs> i got to go in there. Well, what's great is Steve just picked up some books this morning that said I won't get to these for another 20 years. It's, oh, it, I feel that way. I, you know, I feel I, the same way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, guys, we're but running up against stop. time here. Okay. Uh, thank you guys well, thank so you. much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Good. I'm hoping, uh, I, I know Mike will be back, uh, be back again. Hopefully we'll have you uh, back sometime too, Steve. We can just sit and... Just BS about comics and our, our love for a medium that kind of drives us crazy and probably put us in the poorhouse. At least I know it's caused problems for me in the past. But I, I like to think I'm a little smarter now. A little. Just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> but thank you, guys. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Please look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and check us out at calistration.com. And support us by purchasing our new Master Series prints featuring Little Nemo and Slumberland. You got four 18 by 24 inch prints, and if you order now, you'll get free shipping on your next order. That's calistration.com. Okay, thanks everybody. We'll catch you next time.